when we think about Christianity, we automatically think that Christianity means a set of beliefs that you have to acquiesce to, that you have to accept or hold. But when we look at historical Christianity, those early believers, those early followers of Jesus were far more known for how they lived as opposed to what they believed. Welcome to the first ever episode of Holy Heretics, Losing Religion and Finding Jesus from the Sophia Society. We are your hosts, Melanie. And Gary Allen. Thank you so much for joining us on this first episode. We're super excited that you're here. One thing we want to say from the very beginning is that this podcast is a safe place. It's a safe place to ask questions, to have doubts, to consider new points of view that might feel uncomfortable at first. And it's especially a safe place to express frustration or disillusionment with today's church because so much of us are feeling that and we don't know where to go. And we want this to be a place for you to feel comfortable to do that. So no matter where you are in your faith journey, we want you to know that you are welcome here as you are. No changing necessary. And since this is our first episode, we did want to spend some time talking about why Holy Heretics, why you should listen, why we created it, what was the impetus for this. A huge part for us was all of the junk surrounding 2020, especially the politics and the coronavirus. We just kept hearing things like, you know, good Christians only vote Republican or America first, regardless of who was squashed or left behind along the way. And we were tired of it. So we decided let's start a place where we can have a different dialogue and talk about the things that really matter and not just come at it with dogma. So one of the biggest parts of that, of course, is the name Holy Heretics. Why did we call it that? Why did we build that contradiction into it? Gary Allen, tell us why we chose that name. Well, we really like alliteration first. So <laughs> no, really, you know, holy simply means to be set apart. And I think so many of us already feel separated or even isolated from our faith community and from Christianity. And so that's just really welcoming you into a, a community that's already going to be different. And second of all, we really just wanted to reclaim a word that many of us have been called in, in, in a very negative way. You know, if you've been labeled a heretic for your doubts or your questions or beliefs, you're safe here. And if nothing else, being heretical to a version of Christianity that has been co-opted by white nationalism, by wealth, and by power and patriarchy, it's probably the most ethical posture we can claim in, in modern Christianity. And so we're really just trying to change the conversation around what it means to be holy, what it means to be heretical. And I think first and foremost, you have to define the terms. What we're talking about when we say heresy or a heretic is simply someone who believes or promotes uh, an opinion contrary to orthodox doctrine. And of course, orthodoxy is simply what is generally or traditionally accepted as right or true or even normal in, in a faith tradition. Oh, that's, that's interesting. So it's not what I thought it was, which is that orthodoxy is what is right and heresy is what is wrong. There's the consensus element, which is what's generally accepted by a group as right or wrong. Yeah, exactly. I mean, 
you know, you think about it, if the majority of a, of a population agrees on something, for the most part, you know, if they agree that something's true, then it's probably is true. But when we look at history, and especially when we look at the church, a lot of times the majority is wrong. Um, you know, a majority of German evangelical Christians supported Hitler. A majority of white evangelicals in the South supported slavery. And so I think we just have to beg the question that just because something is accepted as as normal doesn't necessarily mean that it's true, because re- really what it does is it it allows us to just sort of uh, lapse into passivity. You know, George Orwell talked about orthodoxy in a very negative way. He said orthodoxy means not thinking. It means not needing to think. Orthodoxy is unconsciousness. Oof. That's that's harsh. So what he's saying is that actually defining something as orthodox in and of itself is bad because that's blindly accepting what someone else is true as truth and basically letting them make up their minds for you. And I really, really want to say that that's not actually true, but I look around and it seems like there's a lot of people who claim to be Christian who have turned their minds off. Yeah, and I think what it does is orthodoxy trains us to simply be passive. It's to accept things that that come from the pulpit or from an authority figure and and to not take ownership of our own faith. And so what we're really trying to do is to help people grow up, to help people mature spiritually to where you really begin to question everything. You begin to question the things that that have been handed down to you um, because so much of what we look at when we look at mainline Orthodox religion today is just bonkers. You know, it it just looks nothing like Jesus. So when we're talking about the notions of heresy, we're really looking at how heresy and orthodoxy play well together. Hmm. You know, you could even argue that they're kind of, you know, two sides to the same coin. Often what we don't believe is far more clear than what we do believe. And so in a way, that's how heresy or heretical ideas really help orthodoxy, because they keep faith moving forward. They keep it dynamic. They keep it in constant dialogue. And honestly, when we look at Christianity, you know, there's just so many things that we can't agree on anyways. I mean, why else do we have 300 different denominations? Why else, you know, does one uh, group believe this and another that? I mean, you know, the gospel, according to a white conservative Republican in Texas, looks radically different than the gospel according to an evangelical Mennonite. So just to be honest with one another, you know, mm. we all don't necessarily agree anyways, and so we need to create space for dissenting opinion. I think that's really good. Uh, one thing that I didn't realize but learned through doing research for this episode was that the word that heresy comes from really wasn't used very much in the Bible at all. So we hear it today and we think we understand what it means, but it really wasn't used much in the Bible. Why is that? Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, the word heresy really comes from a Greek word that simply means choice or opinion. And it's often used in Scripture just in the context of describing maybe a sect or a faction of faith, kind of like the Pharisees or the Sadducees. So it's not really used pejoratively in the way that we think about it. You know, we hear the word heretic and you think about, you know, some satanic figure that's been excommunicated and kicked out. And, and that just really isn't, um, it, that's not what we see in Scripture. The only time we really see it being negative is in Second Peter, where we read, 
There will also be false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord. So, strong statement in Peter. But again, it's interesting to note that for the most part, heresy only means a sect or a faction of believers. And I just think that's really important for us in the modern world because when we think about Christianity, we automatically think that Christianity means a set of beliefs that you have to acquiesce to, that you have to, you know, accept or hold. But when we look at historical Christianity, those early believers, those early followers of Jesus were far more known for how they lived as opposed to what they believed. I mean, there were dynamic opinions in the early church. They they obviously couldn't agree with, with one another. I mean, the church in Rome and the church in Alexandria didn't even have the same Bible. And so for us to embrace the dynamic aspects of our faith really probably means to shift away from defining Christianity as only a set of beliefs and start again to to redefine it in an ancient way, which means following Jesus, being about the way, embodying the way of Jesus in, in, in the modern world. So how did the word heresy go from like meaning just kind of a different sect or group to what it means today, which is the straight up false ideas. Or I guess to put it a different way, how did Christianity go from following Jesus to simply defining what is and is not orthodox? Yeah, I think power. When you look at the first 300 years of Christianity, the early Jesus movement was made up of marginalized, oppressed, and powerless people. The early church really lived on the fringes of the Roman Empire, uh, and they were, again, far more known for how they lived than for what they believed. So orthodoxy for the early church wasn't near as important as orthopraxy or you know, a, a proper right way of living. Now, all of a sudden, in the fourth century, everything changes. The emperor Constantine is converted to Christianity, and now the church moves up from the catacombs into the seats of power, and suddenly, you know, you have church and state that for all intensive purposes become one entity, meaning the head of the church in the fourth century is no longer Jesus, it's Caesar. And it's always funny, when you look at Christianity, when it begins to get in bed with power, things go bad pretty quickly. And for the most part, that's all we've ever known. You know, the last 1700 years of Western Christianity has been a religion that is in the center of society. And so what that typically uh, creates is a very codified religion. It is a religion that is far less about how you live and far more about what you believe because beliefs are innocuous in the sense that, you know, now all of a sudden orthodoxy becomes a way of controlling the masses. And so an institutional church really needed to codify beliefs in order to control the population. And it's also kind of funny that, you know, the best way to really unite an empire is through religion. It's through a shared belief systems. And so Christianity really became a tool in the Roman Empire for control and for codifying beliefs, not so much about the way Jesus lived, but about thinking the right things about Jesus. Well, okay, it does seem like there would have been a need to define what is and is not true Christianity, right? I mean, back in the fourth century or before that, 
or even after that, they didn't have a Bible or like you mentioned, they had different Bibles and they definitely didn't have the words of Jesus to just read because written materials barely existed back then. So it would have been really easy for someone to just come right along and say, actually, Jesus said, you can only get to heaven if you're rich. So good luck. And nobody would have been able to say, yes, that's true or no, it's not. So what do you do with that as the church? I mean, you had to define what was right and wrong in some sense, right? Yeah, totally. And, and you know, don't hear what we're not saying. Like, there's nothing inherently wrong with standards or structure or, or even orthodoxy. I mean, orthodoxy is incredibly helpful for really determining the foundations of, of faith or the fundamentals. That's why, you know, Christians are called fundamentalists. Um, now, the problem, though, is when you stay there. You know, most of us maybe grew up playing sports or playing an instrument. Um, I, I grew up playing basketball, and I, you know, I can remember learning the rules of the game, learning the basics, the fundamentals, the chess pass, dribbling the right way, free throws. But you know, if you never move beyond the basics, it's a pretty boring game. I mean, no one wants to play it. Now, now, thankfully. Once you know the rules, you begin to know how to break them, or at least you begin to know, you know, the nuance of the game, and the game becomes much more fluid, it becomes much more beautiful, much more dynamic. Now we've got alley-oops and Zion Williamson and three-pointers, <laughs> you know, and, and suddenly, knowing the rules, knowing the fundamentals allows you the right to start breaking them a little bit. So I, I think it just means that we're not painting orthodoxy as, as sinful, but we are saying to stay in a rigid, dogmatic faith that isn't growing actually is sinful. Mm -hmm. And uh, growing up in the church, I remember pastors and, and even my parents saying, you know, in essentials, we are unified. In non-essentials, there is liberty, you know, there's freedom. And so the big question in the modern church is, what is essential? What is non-essential? We can't even honestly even agree on that. So this this tension of orthodoxy and heresy is inherent in our faith. And I think one of the traditions that is alive and well today that really does this well is the Anglican tradition. You know, uh, my wife and I are confirmed Episcopalians, and it's kind of a cool modern expression of of seeing this played out on a daily basis. You have very orthodox worship services, you know, that date back over 500 years, very traditional old school worship. And yet at the same time, there's this incredible room for a wide variety of beliefs and practices. It's It's a very open faith, you know, gay and straight, Republican, Democrat, everybody's welcome side by side. So in some ways, I think, you know, a, a lot, obviously a lot of traditions are doing this. They're holding these two things, heresy and openness and orthodoxy together. But I have at least found from my own point of view that the Episcopalian tradition is doing it in, in, a, in a beautiful way. Okay, I can, I can understand the need to define ideas as true or false or at least figure out which ideas need to be defined as true or false so that we do have those fundamentals. What I don't get is how the church went from that to labeling a person as false or labeling a person as a heretic. How did that happen? You know, I'm, obviously I'm not a church historian, uh, but it is safe to say that there's an element of self-protection going on. There's an element where 
as the church became more and more institutionalized, as power became more centralized in, you know, bishops and popes and and elders, you suddenly needed to define who was safe, who was accepted, and who was, you know, on the outs. And the word heretic quickly became a, a buzzword, a label to excommunicate someone, to, to say, nope, you know, you can't listen to them. You must come to us. You must listen to us. And it really, I think, became more of an intentional move to protect the power of, you know, the growing wealthy church that was being established. So it's like the church invented cancel culture way back in the fourth century. Yeah, exactly. It seems like they're like, oh, well, we're, we don't like what this guy is saying. We don't like how it challenges whatever our authority or what we have said is true or even the implications because it might mean that we were wrong. So we're just going to label them as bad. And not only do you have the church excommunicating them, but then you have the people within the church saying, well, I don't want to go anywhere near that person because I don't want to be corrupted by them. I want to be pure and holy myself, so I stay far away. But what's interesting about that is that it doesn't just write off the person. It also writes off their ideas. And it seems like that would mean some ideas that were good ideas were completely written off and disregarded by the church. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even today we're doing it, you know, uh, Rachel Held Evans, uh, Jen Hatmaker, Rob Bell, you know, all three of those individuals are thoughtful. They are really growing spiritually. And yet there are factions of the church that have labeled them heretical, too far gone. You know, you can't listen to them. And it's fear-based. Mm. And it it's also really comes from a place of, you know, I've already decided what's right and wrong, and I cannot listen to anything else. I cannot welcome dissenting opinion. And so it really creates in-groups and out-groups. It creates people who are ardently defending orthodoxy, and they think that that is exactly what they are supposed to do as Christians. And then there are others who are, you know, more open, more welcoming, more nuanced. I, I love what Robin Myers said in one of his books, Spiritual Defiance. He's talking about the notion of orthodoxy and fundamentalism Really, from a little bit more of a negative you know standpoint, we typically don't think of orthodoxy or fundamentalism as being negative. We typically think of heresy as negative, and yet he says fundamentalists of all stripes love a bully pulpit and they hate a round table. Why share power when you when you are right and everybody else is wrong? Who needs dialogue when your monologue is sacrosanct? Why let false prophets there's that word again into the room when you can bolt the door and preach to the choir. Mm. And so, you know, we see this everywhere. Uh, I saw it on Twitter last week. Someone was asking about learning more about Greg Boyd and some of his thoughts and theology. And they said, you know, what's a good first book to be introduced to Boyd's writing? And the very first tweet was, why would you ever read Greg Boyd? He's a heretic. Mm. And so again, just labeling, ostracizing, and rejecting, as opposed to being open to say, gosh, I mean, I don't know everything. Maybe I have something to learn from Greg Boyd, or from Robin Myers, or from Jen Hatmaker. Well, it also, besides just labeling the person as bad and irredeemable, it goes totally against everything Jesus stood for, because he never believed or acted like a person was too far gone to be saved. 
he always, no matter how sinful or loathed they were by society for being, say, a tax collector or a harlot, he didn't give up on them. But what this is doing is basically saying, like, oh, that person's too far gone. We can't talk to them anymore. And we, like, shut the doors on them rather than bringing them into the fold and having those discussions and potentially being able to help them see why their ideas are not correct or or maybe why they're not fully correct or whatever it it's losing that opportunity to help that person pursue Christ rather than something else that isn't Christ so it just seems really antithetical to the way Jesus lived his life and did his ministry but so far up until now we've been assuming that the ideas that the church rejected were actually false have there been times in the history of the church that they called a doctrine quote-unquote heretical but it actually turned out to be a good doctrine or were there times that someone rightfully called into question a held doctrine of the church and it turns out that that was a bad doctrine but the church refused to see that and they just kind of doubled down on their beliefs Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> all the time. Martin Luther comes to mind, you know, nailing uh, nailing his 95 Thesis on the door at Wittenberg, starting the great Protestant Reformation, you know, calling into question the notion of the selling of indulgences or the immorality of popes and bishops. You know, we look back now through the lens of history and know, of course, that so much of what he said was right and true, and yet he's excommunicated by the church. I, you know, I think of the Anabaptists who for generations have adopted nonviolence or pacifism as a core tenet of their faith, and yet they were excommunicated for not wanting to serve in the military. And, you know, come on, there's nothing more fundamental than Christianity than Jesus' call to love our enemies. And I'm pretty sure loving our enemies means we don't get to kill them, right? <laughs> um, you know, Pelagius is a famous heretic who lived during the time of Augustine. And he was excommunicated, banished, exiled from the community, not only for rejecting the notion of original sin, which was pretty you know, interesting during that time, but for the most part, he was banished because he actually believed that women should be taught the scriptures. Oh, God forbid. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. So, so I just think over and again throughout history, we are learning from our mistakes. We are learning that... Oftentimes, it is those outside voices that we really need to be listening to. We need to have space in our churches, in our families, in our faith communities to listen to dissenting voices because they are the ones that are helping us move forward, helping us begin to see things in new and fresh ways. So I know we see in the Bible this idea of being led astray, but we're talking a lot about how oftentimes what we think will lead us astray actually doesn't. So those heretics aren't actually propagating heresy. They're trying to get us back on track. So how can we know when it's good to listen to someone who's been labeled a heretic? Or how can we know when it's good for us ourselves to be labeled a heretic by that dominant religion? I think you have to look at the fruit. You have to look at the type of life that those beliefs are creating. Even for Jesus, when he's talking about the notion of false prophets, he's typically sort of condemning someone not so much for what they believe, but how they lived their lives or how they acted. In, in Matthew's gospel, 
Jesus is recorded as saying, beware of false prophets or, you know, heretics. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are wolves. You will know them by their fruit. Do men gather grapes from thorns or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. So when we look today at the dominant, dominator religion that is so pervasive in American cultural life, we have to ask the question, not whether or not the beliefs are good or bad, but what does the fruit look like? What kind of fruit is that orthodoxy producing? Is the church loving? Is it inclusive? Does it elevate the poor? Is everyone welcome? And if not, then we actually have a duty to call that faith into question, to call some of the things that we deem orthodox really into question. Those biblical worldview warriors are going to label you a heretic for saying it's not about beliefs and it's about fruit. Right. Well, wow. because it's, it's all about certainty. You know, it's all mm. about believing that I have the exact right answers and even worse, that Christianity is about having the right answers as opposed to also being about Jesus. Mm. One thing I've heard is heretics described as deviant insiders. So meaning someone who's within the church, who goes against the status quo, or who questions the normative expressions of faith. And the key there is that they're inside the church and they have the power to create change by going against the status quo. Do you think that description is an accurate description of a heretic? Yeah, I like that. Um, I like the whole notion of being a deviant insider. You know, you are a part of the group, you're a part of the community, but you're resisting. You are calling into question some of the things that are more toxic. And, you know, the word resistance over the last four years has kind of taken on its own life. But there is something beautiful about the notion of resisting things that are inhumane, that are unhealthy, that cannot transform us. You know, so much of us who are these sort of deviant insiders love the church so much. That's why we're frustrated. That's why we're not satisfied, because she's not living into her highest ideals. And throughout Scripture, I think these deviant insiders, if you will, are actually probably better known as prophets. You know, mm -hmm. they're the, the Old Testament weirdos who are calling the faith community into question and bringing us forward. You know, well, you guys think God is violent, and he only loves you, and he's tribal. Well, let me introduce you to the real God, right? So these prophets functioned really to nurture and nourish and evoke a new way of, of, of religion, a new way of perception alternative to the consciousness and perception of the dominant r religion around them. So I don't know, maybe, maybe a better term is dissident insider as opposed to deviant. You know, the word deviant, I don't know, I, I just watched uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It makes me think of serial killers. So um, <laughs> I mean, you know, I think a dissident insider really is someone who is prophetic, who refuses to accept expressions of faith that are dehumanizing, and they're calling things into question. Maybe, you know, maybe they're holy heretics after all. I really, really love that distinction between deviant and dissident. And I think that that's so important, too, because it shows why we have to come from within the church to change Christianity, not how some outsider can come in and change it. With an outsider, I think of a critic, like a movie critic. Movie critics have 
no no say, no stake in whether the film does well or not. So if they say something horrible about the film and it tanks, no big deal. They still get their paycheck. But if there's someone who's working on the film who says, hey, I think we could tell this story better, then you know it comes from a place of caring. And like you said, from loving that thing or loving the church as it would be for us and wanting it to become better or for us wanting the church to become more like Christ. Really quickly, I think it's important that listeners also understand why we chose the subtitle Losing Religion and Finding Jesus. We haven't talked about that at all yet. So can you just briefly explain the heart behind that? Yeah, I think first and foremost, you know, they're not the same thing. Religion and Jesus, for the most part, (laughs) don't mix well together. Um, Jesus wasn't necessarily, you know, here to establish a religion. He was here to create transformation and salvation. And I think in so many churches that many of us have grown up in, Jesus has just left the building. Um, mm. there's, there's not much left in conservative uh, fundamentalism that looks like Jesus. And so we are pursuing him to the ends of the earth, outside the boundary of established religion. And so often salvation really does come from the periphery. It comes from the margins, not the center. And, you know, again, when you look at the life of Jesus, his, his original teachings, we begin to find that it's, a lot of that's bereft in, in the church. You know, he's penniless. He's this penniless, poor, brown, itinerant person. Yet the gospel now is attached to some of the most uh, rich and most powerful people on earth. Uh, you know, Jesus preached welcoming to the stranger. Today's church supports putting our strangers in cages at our border. He preached and lived a life of revolutionary nonviolence. And yet, for the most part, we Christians are the greatest supporters of war on the planet. So our goal is to pursue Jesus wherever he leads us. And more often than not, he's going to lead us outside of institutional religion. Mm, That makes me super excited, once again, to be part of this. Okay, real quick, one last topic before we're done. And this may be the most important, but also the most difficult aspect of this whole thing which is what it will mean for us, for you and I, but also for listeners to embrace that title or that label of being a heretic and also to embrace the role as a prophet or a holy heretic or a dissident insider. What will that mean for our lives if we choose to walk down that path? Well, you're probably going to feel alone. You're probably going to feel like a weirdo. You're probably going to not fit in. And that's a good thing. You know, there is so much that we take for granted in white American evangelicalism that we believe is true that honestly just isn't. You know, over the last several months, we've seen billboards up, you know, God and guns or put America first and all of these cliches and all of these things that, you know, we're voting for Jesus. Uh, are we? I, I don't think so. So it's going to take a lot of courage for you to step out and to potentially name some things that are just utterly antithetical to Christ. And I would just also in, uh, encourage us all, you know, y- you can't be prideful about it. Uh, you can't be so zealous in your desire to reform or to think differently that you become, you know, arrogant or prideful. So mm. I think humility is, is it has to be a part of this journey as well. But 
you've got to first and foremost just have the courage to realize that if you're feeling something in your gut, if the spirit is moving you to go, you know what, I just don't think this is right. I don't think that uh, being a Christian is synonymous with being a Republican. I don't think that being a Christian means I have to be a white nationalist. I don't think that you know, being a Christian means that I get to be wealthy and never share my resources with the poor. So it's going to take a lot of courage to step out. It's going to take a lot of humility to be able to earn the right to be listened to by those on the inside. For sure. And I do believe, and I know that I speak from experience, and I know you've gone through this too, Gary Allen, but it will mean difficulty in relationships because you're questioning things that are held as foundational. They're held as the essence of faith. And you're coming in and saying, is that the essence of faith? And it's going to make things tough. It might make it so that your good friends, your loved ones have a hard time talking with you or being around you. Or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe you have a hard time being around them. Uh, So it's going to be difficult. But that doesn't mean it won't be beautiful and it won't be worth it because the end goal is Christ. It is knowing Christ as fully as we can. It is helping others to know Christ as fully as we can. It's helping the church to become his representative in the way it was meant to be. And that's precisely why we started this podcast is because we know it's going to be tough. We know it's going to be hard. We know you're going to go through possibly some grieving over losing relationships or losing standing or maybe even a job. So we want to be here for you. That's why we started this podcast. And we want you to reach out to us with your questions, with your frustrations. We're willing to sit with you in whatever it is you're going through. We are here to encourage you. So please feel free to reach out to us. We're on social media. You could send us a DM. You can find us on Twitter as at Holy Heretics and on Instagram as at Holy Heretics Podcast. Or if you're just not on social media, feel free to shoot us an email at podcast at sophiasociety.org. That's podcast at S-O-P-H-I-A society.org. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're so glad that you listened and that you are given this podcast a shot. We hope that this was interesting and it nourished and fed you. We do have show notes and references. Um, You can head to our website. That's sophiasociety.org, S-O-P-H-I-A society.org. Just click on podcast in the menu bar and you can find each episode with show notes. God willing, we'll be back soon with another episode. We are part of a nonprofit organization. So the Sophia Society relies on donations from listeners like you to be able to produce content. If this is something that you're interested in and you want us to keep moving forward on, we would love it if you consider becoming a patron on Patreon. You can find us on there by either going to their website and searching Holy Heretics, or you can go to patreon.com slash holyheretics. Thanks so much for joining us, and hopefully we'll be back soon. <laughs>